You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. This is the fifth talk in our series entitled Seven Key Truths About the Lord Jesus Christ. And our subject this evening is His Triumphant Ascension. Just to remind you what we've done so far, we've talked about His virgin birth, His sinless life, His substitutionary atoning death, His bodily resurrection, and now we come to His triumphant ascension. There are two more talks to follow this one. So, what do we know about the ascension? Many people would say not much. In fact, it's a sadly neglected subject. Most Christians remember the birth of Jesus at Christmas and they remember the death and resurrection of Jesus at Easter and uh, they might remember the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But what about the Ascension? Uh, When for a few years I taught, before I went to university, uh, in a Church of England primary school as an uncertificated teacher, um, I discovered that we had a day off uh, on the Thursday 10 days before what used to be called Whitson. And that was Ascension Day. And I must admit, with my Baptist background, uh, nobody had ever mentioned the Ascension as far as I could remember. But uh, there we are. So what can we learn about the Ascension? It is of great importance to us as Christians. And uh, back in the 1950s, a Pentecostal man called Karl Brumbach wrote a book called Accent on the Ascension. Uh, He's an American scholar, and uh, he claims in this book that he went into the, uh, what is it called, the American Congress Library. It's uh, one of those libraries where there has to be a copy of every book that's ever published goes into it, a bit like the Bodleian Library at Oxford and the British Museum, that kind of thing. And he said, there was not a single book on the Ascension to be found, which is quite a big thing to say. So he decided to write a book on it. Uh, And it's from that book that I've drawn quite a few thoughts in this particular talk. Now, (laughs) on the cover of the book, uh, he makes an astounding claim. If the Lord Jesus Christ had not ascended the infallible proof of his incarnation would be lost, his sacrificial death on Calvary would have been in vain, access into the presence of God would be denied to all, it would be impossible to be saved, none would be indwelt or infilled by the Holy Spirit, we would have no advocate with the Father, and the church would be bereft of its blessed hope. Those are all Brumbach's words. Okay, well, you might want to question that, but um, I think by the time I've finished, you'll have some idea of why he makes this kind of claim. So we're going to begin by looking at uh, three New Testament accounts of the Ascension. The first one is in Mark, chapter 16 and verse 19. And Mark simply says this, 
After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. So he was taken up into heaven. Not a particularly graphic description, but nevertheless a clear statement that Jesus was taken up into heaven. Luke 24, verses 50 and 51. When he, Jesus, had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And I can remember many years ago preaching on that particular verse because I liked the thought that Jesus raised his hands to bless them. And while he was blessing them, present continuous tense, or past tense, but continuous, while he was blessing them, he was taken up. So my picture of this is that Jesus is ascending with hands of blessing raised. Hallelujah. And I like to think that those hands of blessing are raised for his church even today, so to speak. Uh, well, there you are. That's Luke's description in uh, his gospel. And then in Acts 1, also written by Luke, verses 9 to 11, Luke tells us this. After Jesus had said this, and you will remember that what he said in verse 8 is that they would receive power after the Holy Spirit had come upon them and there would be witnesses to him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. A much talked about theme in our circles. Uh, but after he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going. I like that. They were actually watching him go. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Now, incidentally, some translations say into heaven uh, because the Greek is exactly the same, just like in French, for those who know any French, ciel in French is the word for the sky, it's also the word for heaven. And it's the same thing, not the same word. Um, it's tois uh, uraniois, into the heavens, into the skies. Okay, uh, where was I? Uh, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Wow, that's a pretty amazing thought, isn't it? You have seen him go into heaven. Now, how much they saw exactly did they see right into heaven? Well, we're not told that, though I'm reminded that Stephen, uh, when he was dying, said he saw Jesus uh, standing at the right hand of God. So who knows what they saw, but uh, certainly they saw him ascend into the heavens. Okay, so those are the descriptions. Very simple, very brief. So maybe that's why we don't hear a lot about it. But tonight I'm going to share with you eight aspects of the ascension. And they are as follows. 
Jesus demonstrated his deity. He reclaimed his rights. He assures us of access into heaven. He has poured out his spirit. He acts as our advocate. He sends out his servants. He prepares a place for his people. And he awaits his advent. Wow, what a series of points. And, uh, well, I guess you could preach a sermon on each of those. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'll spend a little more time on the first two or three and then be relatively brief on the others because they are either will be covered elsewhere in this series of podcasts or have been covered in other podcasts that I have uh, done and are still available to those who would like to listen to them by visiting my website www.davidpets.org so let's start then with Jesus demonstrated his deity and for that we go to John chapter 6 and uh, Jesus has talked about being the bread which has come down from heaven um, Moses has given them manna in the wilderness but he's something uh, better than anything that Moses could give and so uh, we pick it up in verse 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And verse 39, I've left some words out, but this will be the will of him who sent me, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. So Jesus is saying, I've come down from heaven to do God's will so that everyone who believes in me as God's son will have eternal life. Verse 41, at this the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And verse 42, they said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, mistake number one, whose father and mother we know, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? I mean, as Christians, we take it for granted, Jesus came from heaven. But what a mind-blowing thought, what a blasphemous thought that must have been to the Jewish thinker of Jesus' day. So in these verses, Jesus clearly claims to have come from heaven. And the Jews understandably find a claim like that extremely difficult to believe. But a little bit further on in the chapter, you'll see, Jesus replies that the evidence that he had come from heaven will be that he will one day be seen to return to heaven seen to return remember what we just read in acts 1 you have seen him go into heaven and interesting in verse 60 while all this is being talked about the disciples themselves find it difficult this is a hard teaching who can accept it 61 aware that his disciples were grumbling about this jesus said to them does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Wow. What a question. So you see, 
You follow the logic? The ascension is the final proof of the incarnation. The ascent is the proof that there was a descent. He said, I will ascend. You will see me ascend into heaven. And ascend into heaven he did, and they saw him go. If there had been any remaining doubt in the disciples' minds as to who he was, it was dispelled by the ascension. Now, they must have had a growing appreciation of who he was, you know. Uh, first of all, perhaps he was a miracle worker or a great teacher or something like this, and bit by bit he is the Christ, uh, which is, you know, pretty good. But uh, they get even to the son of the living God, um, elsewhere and so on and uh, Thomas of course after the resurrection uh, my Lord and my God but now wow if they'd understood he was God he was God here on earth but now they saw him ascend to the right hand of the majesty on high they saw him as God in heaven what a wonderful thing far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. Yes, the words of St Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. So by his ascension, point number one, Jesus demonstrated his deity. Point number two, he reclaimed his rights. Now this is quite an interesting one and could be, for some people, a little bit controversial because it involves the doctrine of kenosis, which is the word that theologians use to refer to Jesus emptying himself when at the incarnation. So let's read Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Your attitude, well-known passage this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, verse 7, when Jesus left heaven, he made himself nothing. And the question that arises in people's minds is, well, did he cease to be God when he became man? And the answer to that is, no, he didn't cease to be God. But then in what sense did he empty himself, make himself nothing? Well, I'm going to tell you what I believe, and um, I hope you'll agree with me. He was essentially one with God. And if you are God, you can't stop being God. He possessed all the attributes that make God, God. Even when he was here on earth as a man. Oh! Now some would say, no, he didn't have those attributes 
because he was limited to a human body and therefore he couldn't be everywhere at once. True. So, how do we reconcile all this? Let's remember that great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The incarnation is a mystery. I'm trying to do my best to explain the inexplicable, to explain what is essentially a mystery. So if you don't approve of the way I handle it, well, God bless you, that's just fine. But this is the way I understand it. Okay. So, he's still God, but he voluntarily stripped himself of all his privileges and assumed the place of a slave and was born as a human being. Now, that doesn't mean that during his life on earth as a man, he ceased to be God. He simply did not choose to draw upon the attributes of deity, which as God, he still possessed. Because he couldn't stop being God. So he still possessed those attributes, but he chose not to draw on them. So I believe with many people, particularly Pentecostals, um, and many others as well, uh, that his miracles were not performed by virtue of his deity. His miracles were performed as a man through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that ties in with what he says in John chapter 14, he who believes on me, the works, in the context that means miracles, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Is that making sense? So, here's an illustration which I hope will help you. Imagine a prince who leaves his own country where he is a prince and he goes to a far country and uh, you know, perhaps for charitable reasons voluntarily refuses to draw on his royal assets back home that prince does not stop being a prince he will always be royalty, he will always be a prince, he will always be the son of his father, but he has chosen not to draw on any of the assets in his bank account, if I may put it that way. That's how I understand what Jesus was doing as a man here on earth. But he's still God in the sense that he has those attributes, they're his for the taking, but he chooses not to take them until the ascension. So you can go away and think about that um, or even start thinking about it now, but keep listening. <laughs> All right. Now, why did he do this? Well, of course, he did it that he might die, come and die for us sinners. <clears throat> having died for us and having risen again the third day to demonstrate his power over death, he finally ascended 40 days later. He returned to his father and in my words, reclaimed his rights. And that brings us to the next bit of Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, which to me suggests the ascension. 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here's an even greater mystery. He was God before he came. He continued to be God while he was here, but did not draw on his divine attributes. And now he's ascended to the Father and reclaimed his rights. But there is a change. For now, he's not just God. He is also man. And as man, he has this authority. His human name, Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Humanity is deified in the person of Jesus. Wow. Well, there's quite a lot of deep stuff there and maybe controversial stuff, and uh, I leave you to think about it. So point number three, and I see this podcast has already taken over 20 minutes, so as I have told you, the remaining points will be somewhat briefer. So point number three, he assures us of access into heaven. Without the ascension, Christ's sacrificial death would have been in vain. Now, that's another thing. Now, come on, he came and died for my sins and he rose again. That's great. Surely his death was enough. Well, yes, in a sense. But if we look at the Old Testament imagery, the foreshadowing that went on in the sacrifices in the old tabernacle and temple, you will see that actually there's more to it than that. So let me quote from Brumbach again. He says in the Old Testament, the supreme moment in the ministry of the high priest was not at the altar which incidentally is prophetic of the cross, not at the altar, but at the mercy seat, which was inside the veil. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest became the representative of all the priests who had ministered at the altar throughout the year. The offering on that day was the one from which all other sin offerings derived their efficacy. Hence the ministry at the altar was an exceedingly solemn and sacred moment for the high priest. But the high point of the great day came when he bore the blood of the sacrifice beyond the veil. Until the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, there was no atonement, no remission of sins. For no matter how perfect the sacrifice, the blood was not efficacious unless the high priest took that blood within the veil. There's a sense in which, at the ascension, Jesus was taking the merits of his death, his blood, taking them within the veil, into heaven and presenting his blood as an atonement for our sins. Many of you will never have thought of it like that before. So, 
Well, I leave it to you to think about. Well, without the ascension, Christ's sacrificial death would have been in vain. But, thank God, Jesus has ascended. By his own blood, he has entered the holy place as our great high priest. Hebrews 9.12, you can look these verses up for yourselves. And because he has so entered, we too may have boldness to enter. Hebrews 10.19-22. So by his ascension, Jesus assured us of access to heaven. So now, my remaining points will be very brief. Point number four, he's poured out his spirit. And he continues to pour out his spirit. The ascension was a necessary prelude to Pentecost. The descent of the spirit was dependent on the ascent of the Son. Jesus had said, unless I go away, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus had to go the way of the cross. He had to go through the grave. He had to be raised from the dead. And he had to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And in Peter's words, it acts to having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear, Peter said to the crowd there at Pentecost. So, during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given, John seven thirty nine, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. What does that mean? Well, of course, certain people did receive the Spirit in the Old Testament and in the New Testament before Pentecost, but they were a limited few. There was to be the outpouring of the Spirit prophesied by Joel in Joel 2.28, that God would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. And... In that sense, until that happened, in John's words, the Spirit was not yet given. But of course, as a result of the ascension, Jesus was glorified. Peter, preaching, preaching to the crowd on the day of Pentecost, declared, exalted to the right hand of God. See, he's been ascended. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So because of his ascension, Jesus has poured out his spirit. So we've covered four aspects of the ascension, and I've got eight. Well, those four all in a sense relate to the past. They tell us what Christ has accomplished by his ascension. The remaining four, which I shall just almost outline, uh, relate to the present and the future. Christ's ascension is not merely a fact of history, it's vitally relevant to us here and now. So point number five, he acts as our advocate. Now we're going to discuss this subject more fully in our next talk, when we talk about his abiding intercession. So, all we need to do now is to note that it was because of the ascension that we have someone who speaks to the Father in our defence. As our heavenly lawyer, Jesus defends us against the accusations of Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren. 
Point number six, he sends out his servants. Ephesians 4 verses 8 to 11 tells us that when Jesus ascended, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. And he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, you know it. So it's the ascended Christ who gives men and women to the church who will equip others for works of service. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. As we work for him on earth, we do it in the knowledge that he is at the right hand of God, exalted in majesty and power. And that's a massive subject. And some of you will know that I've written a book on it. Bodybuilders, gifts to make God's people grow. At least part one of that book is on that particular subject. So it's available from the website. So point number seven. He prepares a place for his people. Another amazing aspect of the Lord's ascension is that he has gone to prepare a place for us. Remember John 14, 3, I am going to prepare a place for you. Oh, or a mansion, if you like. In my Father's house are many mansions. Modern translations say many rooms. Well, I'd prefer a mansion to a room any day. Well, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> so he's going to prepare a place for us. So we don't know the exact details, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. We will know. It's enough for the time being to know that we shall be where he is. And, you know, I think that satisfies me. If I'm going to be where Jesus is, it doesn't really matter what the heavenly dwelling is going to be like. And finally, he's looking forward to coming back again. He awaits his advent, point number eight. Jesus said, John 14, 3, If I go, I will come back. He has gone. So he is coming. And that's confirmed by the angels at his ascension. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The fact of the ascension is the guarantee of the second coming. But that will be the subject of our final talk in this series. God bless you. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit Brixham.church.